morning. I'd like to say nice sunny January day, but I'm going to be able to do that. Thanks for that introduction. Um, we are the ministry that y'all have supported the last few years with the baby bottle campaign. And before I go further, I want to thank you for your support. Um, we would not be able to do what we do without that kind of support. Individuals and churches like you. Last year, we saw approximately 2,000 young ladies in crisis pregnancy situations. I feel like I need to look this way because there's more people on here now. Not all of those girls were trying to have an abortion or what we call abortion vulnerable, uh, but of those that were, we estimate that more than, say, 318 babies through our ministry. Uh, this is the 27th year of our ministry, and we estimate that over those 27 years, 9,000 babies have been saved. So, uh, again, we would be able to do it without churches like yours. Thank you for that. I also want to thank you for having me here this morning. I'd like to introduce my wife, Kathy, as you go to him. And uh, our friends, Linda and Chuck McAvoy, they came. Uh, I'm not sure why they came. They just you know, be able to point out errors I made or something. Actually, they're very good friends and they're huge supporters. Today is National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. This this day was uh, initiated by President Ronald Reagan in 1984. It falls on the third Sunday of January. The reason is that it approximates the date of the uh, January 22nd, 1973, when the Supreme Court handed down its decision in the Roe v. Wade case, which legalized abortion in the United States. How many of you have been born since 1973? Well, maybe I should say, how many more of you were born before 1973? Okay. A lot more of you have been born since 1973 than before. There was a time in this country when abortion was illegal. Uh, and you know what an issue it is? It has been an issue for all of your lives. Uh, today is certainly an appropriate day for us to talk about the sanctity of human life. Uh, again, before we go any further, there may be someone here who has had an abortion, or somebody in the family has had an abortion, or maybe that, and uh, still carrying around with regret and guilt associated with that. My purpose here is not to further your pain and make it worse. But my purpose here this morning is really to establish what God's work says about abortion. So I would appreciate it if you um, listen with an open mind and look at your own. Since I don't mind at the end of time today, I'd like to tell you that if you are in that situation, that the good news is, is that forgiveness is available for you, just like it is for me and for everybody else in the community. You can go to the of that sin or some other sin. And uh, you can find forgiveness in So please remember that as we well talk about this issue. Since 1973, over 58 million babies have been aborted. In the United States. Perhaps you read in the paper yesterday or heard uh, in the news that uh, an abortion clinic in Lexington was closed. Anybody hear that? Hear that? Okay, well, it was, the, it, was, it was run by the same group that runs the last abortion clinic now in Kentucky. 
now on Market Street, between 1st and 2nd Street here in Louisville. It's also right next door to one of our facilities, and so we, we try to intercept girls who are going in there and try to get them to come in and talk to us and let talk to them about options and everything. It's very uphill, difficult ministry, as you might imagine. But there on that, in that facility uh, on Market Street, every year approximately 3,000 babies are killed. That's, for every day that they're open, that's more than 11 we think about issues, big issues like abortion. If we're not personally involved with it, it seems a little bit just this is right here in our community. This is on Market Street every day of the week you can go down there. And as you pass by that facility, just imagine that the babies are going to be up that day. This problem. We were able to save 318, but we lost 3,000. So, you can see what an issue it is. Um, I am passionately opposed to abortion, as you know what I assume that most of you all are too, but I, I don't assume that I put it on this. Uh, perhaps some of you have questions about it. Some of you still question whether abortion is wrong, or even if it's a problem, or some of you may not even thought about it very much. key is, what I want to get across here, is that it really doesn't matter what my opinion is, or your opinion is, it's really not what God is. If you look uh, on your website at your statement of faith, your, your statement starts off with these words. It says the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving grace, faith, and obedience. Our opinions are not authoritative. But we all come to this with preconceived beliefs. And if we do, it's going to be hard to be shaken with new information. I've told this story so many times. I'm coming and I'm my wife and my friends because their eyes are going to roll back at the same time. But it does demonstrate the point here. When our younger son was getting ready to go to uh, kindergarten, uh, all three of our kids went to Christian Academy in Louisville. But um, the night that we took him to orientation, uh, Kathy happened to be out of town on business, and so I took him by myself. He was excited, I was excited. He knew the way because he had been with his mother to pick up his two older siblings in school. And as we approached the, the school, we looked at him and told the house and said, Dad, that house is haunted. And I said, Haunted? He said, Yeah, the ghost was there. I said, Why did you say that? He said, well, the other day, Mom and I drove by here, and the front door opened, and nobody came out, and nobody came out. I said, I need mean, nothing to worry about ghosts. Only ghosts, we don't have a ghost, and that's who God sent to help us. And he looked at me and said, Well, that's where he lives. <laughs> See, he wasn't going to let that go. He, he, he had it in his mind. That's, that's where a ghost lives. Uh, that's the way we are with all of our information. When somebody introduces new information, we're a little bit skeptical, a little bit reluctant to accept it. Um, and so again, I, I just ask that you uh, listen with an open mind this morning, not to what I say, but what God says through His Word, and make up your own mind and when you finish. What I find in the Bible about abortion uh, can be summed up on with three seconds. The first is, is that Humans are made in the image of God. 
and our lives are sacred. We throw around the word sacred and sanctity a whole lot. What exactly does that mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, sacred means that something is worthy of awe or respect. And sanctity just means that something is sacred. So when we, we talk about uh, human life being sacred, we're talking about human life as something that we should see with awe and respect. That if God made us the way he did. The second uh, premise is that we're predicted from murdering other things. And then the third is that the babies and women, women are people. So we're, we're special because we're made in God's image. We're not supposed to take life of another person. And the baby in the womb is a person. Now, how did I come to those conclusions? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The first place we want to go to is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. If you want to follow in the Bible, that's Genesis 1, 26, 28. How many Dallas Cowboy fans are there again? Oh, good. Uh, how many Packers fans are there again? That's you, I know. If you'll notice, I, I marked my Bible with drinking gold labels today. Uh, I want to point that out to you. Okay, um, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him. They only female who created him. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful. And increase in number. Fill the earth with severe. Rule over the fish of the sea, and birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. When I think of the sanctity of life, I think it begins here, and that we are made in the image of God. The truth of God's created act is essential for us to really understand who we are and who God is. And to understand that he created us with purpose. And he created us to have communion with him. He starts off by saying, let us make man in our own likeness. This one, if you'll notice, is different than any of the rest of, of his, his uh, creations that we read out in Genesis, where he says, let there be, like, let there be light. Or let the, like the, let the water keep creatures. Here he says, let us make man in our own likeness. There have been a lot of different explanations made for what that means that us, the two primary ones are that it means either referring to the three people of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Others think that it might refer to God and the angels. Um, I've always thought of it in terms of the Trinity, but either way, he, he has made us in his image. Um, and, and we look like him in, in, in some way. One author noted, he said, this text teaches us that we are in certain respects like gods. We're not gods, but there's something about us which makes us God-like. And the verse goes on and talks about that we're made in its image and its likeness. So I think that adds a little bit of understanding for us. Again, the traditional understanding of the, of the image and likeness uh, wording is, is that we share communion with God. We, we have spiritual uh, qualities and mental qualities that we share with God that none other of this creation does. Again, some scholars object to that understanding and, and believe that a, a better trans-
translation of the word that are used here is that let us make man so that he may rule. So in this way, it's talking about that we have a purpose, that we are like servant kings in God's place here on earth, that we get slice for us, and we're over everything else on, on uh, the face of the earth. Nobody made like us, we're made special. Either way you, you, you translate that or understand that, I think it communicates uh, the same uh, image, that we are special in God's creation. And I personally think it both. I think we share those those qualities of God, of uh, spiritual and emotional and mental level that we can communicate them. But I also think that He's made us above every other creature on earth so that we can be His servant kings here on earth. Either way, or both, the message is clear. We are really special. He goes on and says uh, that just like the, the, the birds, the fish, the boar that He created, he blessed me and he instructed us to be fruitful and to increase in number. Just imagine, we have been given the opportunity, this unique lesson of populating the earth with other creatures who are made in God's image. Again, something that nothing else on the face of the earth do. He told man then to subdue and rule over the living things. Again, you see this imagery of the servant king, of being his representative on the face of the earth and rule over the rest of the creatures. So when you take all that together and you summarize it, what you come up with, or what I came up with, is that the, the Trinitarian God, creator of the world, has made us in his own image, and we have a very special relationship. Second, he's blessed us and given us the privilege of populating the earth with other creatures who are made in his image. And third, he's made us as representatives here on earth. He's given us the meaning and the rest of, of all of the living things. Regardless of whether you how you see some of the nuances of that verse, I think it's clear that he has created us to occupy privileged space in his creation. That he's adorned us with a magnificence that ought to remind us of the magnificence of our creator. So that's that's the first premise. We are special. As human beings, human life is special. It is sacred. Okay, the second verse I want us to look at is Exodus twenty thirteen. You don't even have to look, look it up. Let me just read it. It's four words. You shall not murder. By the way, I'm reading out the NIV today. This is the sixth of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, it's in a group of the last six, which are called horizontal commandments, which govern the relationships between God and man, uh, as opposed to the first four that govern the relationships between, uh, excuse me, the horizontal between man and man, and then the, the first four are vertical, which is showing the relationship between God and But th- they were given to the people of Israel over the prior three months, you know, the uh, Israel had been, they experienced the exodus out of Egypt, they had been rescued at the Red Sea, they had been provided manna and quail in the wilderness, and finally they had gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. God gave them his covenant, and then three days later, God gave Moses his ten commandments to, uh, to, to Israel. They're both, they're short and succinct, especially this one. Actually, in Hebrew, this commandment is only two words, and it's never murder. A few popular translations translate the word as kill, but many more, including the NIV and the New uh, Life Standard Version, prefer that the proper translation is murder. This is not the word, the Hebrew word that's used for other kinds of killing, 
when this word is used in the Old Testament, is it really referring to the organ of the kidney? What they're referring to is what we would refer to as the heart, the place where our intellect is, where our feelings are, our emotions are, where our soul is. So when he says it's in those being, that's what he's referring to. He's already referring to the fact that we have our soul in the womb. Uh, there's no qualifications or limitations. My, my logic says it's that that life, uh, that soul begins at conception. But we don't have to go very far to find support for that. If you look at Psalm 51, you don't have to look it up, let me just read to you. Uh, David wrote, Surely I was sent for a birth, sinful, from the time my mother conceived. And it's hard to be sinful if you're not a person. He says, I was sinful from the home I was conceived. He has specifically support the idea that life begins at conception. There are a lot of other places we can go to to support that. We can go to science and talk about how a unique DNA is established for a person at the time that the egg is fertilized. We can talk about logic. We don't talk about people carrying a room, carrying around uh, fetal matter in their rooms. They're carrying around babies. My, my daughter is pregnant, and uh, she asked my grandson yesterday if he wanted to come and feel a baby kids. And he didn't say anything if he liked to come and feel future sibling of yours. We, we all think of it as a baby and a room. So we can talk about that, but we're, what we're here to do today is to talk about um, what Scripture has to say. Now we've seen the Scripture indicates that life begins at conception in Psalm 51. But you may still have some doubt. A lot of people do. Let me just ask you, just very practically, if we have evidence that life begins at conception from the Word of God, our standard of truth. But we're not sure. Does it make sense to err on the side of conservatism and assume that it starts with conception, then to assume it starts at some other place and then be wrong? Consequences of being wrong is too awful to comprehend. So, just from a practical perspective, I think it makes sense that we really think of it in terms of if God does it in conception, because it does. Going back to our text, uh, he says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, all of God's works are wonderful, but David here is saying that the baby in the room is even more miraculous and incredible than the rest of his creation. And his only response to God is to praise. He says, My frame was not hidden from you. God was there with him in the room. God is with you in the room. I have a co-worker who's a baby was born very prematurely and she is in the UK right now. Uh, one day this week she she looked in very well and tried to clear her air passage and about three groups started coming up. They rushed her to a downtown hospital to the ER and Abigail to keep her anticipated unit and found out that her bowel had spontaneously perforated. And so she's just in a really bad spot. We're all praying for the baby, but it's still comforting to know that God is there with that baby. God is one with that baby. She's not by herself. He says uh, that this book was the frame that was not hidden from God, that this took place in the secret place in the depths of the earth. These are both euphemisms for the wind. Uh, when you read something like that, you have to understand what we're talking about. He's just referring to 
David Platt is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board. He may have read some of his books. Uh, but he wrote about this. He said, everything, everything revolves around what is happening in the The scripture is clear that word contains a person being forth in the image of God. God reminds us of his word that though an unborn baby is physically hidden from us, he or she is not hidden from him. The key David then acknowledged that God had ordained and determined all the days in his life. That reinforces again our understanding that God knows us as a person even before we are born. Now we've seen in our culture, we will look at the other and they will look yeah, God does make an exception. I read uh, an online uh, blog, I guess it was, they asked the question, does human life begin at conception? And one of the respondents wrote this, sure. But it doesn't matter. Human life does certainly begin at conception, but human life isn't particularly valuable. Rights come from personhood. This person admits that they in the room is likely as it is personal. Now, if you look up person in the dictionary, it will say it's a human being. This, this respondent of this, this blog is trying to say that personhood is something else, that it's some quality that you acquire outside the room. And in my view, this is just a challenge based on semantics. What does it mean to be a person? It means to be a human. What this person is arguing is that this person is not significant enough to give them a label. And what he's saying is that a person's value is based on their utility. A baby in the room can't do the kind of things that. And so this person was saying, because they can't do these things, that it's, it's not, it's not uh, legitimate to give it a call to a person. Which is pretty ridiculous, and it's an argument that could be used for euthanasia on the other end of the human life cycle, where as we get older, we have less utility. The, the fault in all this is, is that person is not a function, is a function. Uh, and you've already seen, you've already read God's word. Don't make it what you've got. Just because you made it good enough. You deserve the dignity, you deserve the awe and respect that we talked about, that we talked about the second of life. Few of us would deny that a person, that person in common, is still a person. Nor should we. Said that just because of the baby of the world is at the very beginning of his life cycle, he did not appreciate it. I've shown you the passages that I think are to support these three statements, but there are plenty more that we could do. So I'm just mentioning that. First, Job 10, uh, verses 10 to 11. Job acknowledges that God did get together. In Psalm 119, verse 73, the psalmist says, Your hands made me and formed me. Isaiah 44, 2 and 49, 5 say that God formed us in the middle. In Jeremiah 1, 5, God told Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the room, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophets of nations. Jeremiah was appointed as prophets of nations while he was still in the middle. Finally, we can look at Luke 144, where Elizabeth saw Mary coming. 
um, message, uh, paraphrase the Bible, but in this case, I think it has, it's really good in clarifying these verses we're talking about. Let me just read these verses to you. It's safe, good, and correct. To rescue the perishing, don't hesitate to step in and help. If you say, hey, that's none of my business, will that keep you off the hook? Someone's watching you closely, you know. Someone not impressed with the teachings. I know it's hard to take. This is what we are to do as God's representatives here on earth, as his people made in his image, as his people who are accepted in as our Savior. We are to protect those who can't protect themselves, which speaks to those who can't speak to themselves. What's that look like practically? Let me give you some options. One, we can all speak out. In our conversations, family, friends, wherever, wherever this is being debated, we can speak out and let people know what we feel about something we like. Uh, we can give to pro-life causes like we all have to do baby bombs. We can go for pro-life candidates. We can volunteer. Our ministry is built on volunteers. We have about 175 volunteers who volunteer uh, regularly. We do everything from counseling to the community to answer the telephone. We have a, a list of painting hands who can come in and do things in our facility. Uh, we, have, we have a place for teaching, for tutoring, for cooking, for child care. We have lots and lots of things. So if you feel led to volunteer, I encourage you to go on our website and fill out an application to volunteer and administrate resources. We can find a place for you in our ministry. Uh, I'd like to see you be creative. How about housing unwed mothers? A lot of girls that we run into uh, who have decided to keep their babies, their families have kicked them out of the house. You know where they place to go. It really is heartbreaking to see a girl in a crisis pregnancy. It is really hard to see them in the house of homes. So, you know, think about that. I have a close friend who is actually a pastor here in town who he and his wife feel like that's part of their calling is to have a spare room for people who are in need. There's room for some number of folks. I don't know if any of y'all have that circumstance or whether you think that would be something you'd like to do or something to think about. Uh, get involved with youth ministry. That, that's one of the ways we can start with all of this, is to teach God's word and his truth to our youth before they ever show up on Market Street downtown. Because once they get there, the chances of them turning around and not avoiding the baby are small. We can be a model of Christian love, not only in Christian love, but also forgiveness. It is more likely that a young lady in crisis pregnancy who is in an evangelical church will choose to have an abortion than it is for a girl in a population of love. Let me repeat that. It's more likely that a girl in an evangelical church who is pregnant in her life. Choose abortion. More likely, you know, people just out in the population. Why would that be? Well, I suspect it's because of the shame, guilt, that's associated with abortion. Because when anybody brought to the family, brought to the girl, she doesn't feel that forgiveness in the church. That, that's the conviction I know. Now, I'm not saying that we don't want to look at severity and sin, or that we minimize that. But I'm saying that we can reach out both with the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, 
but also in the world. And except that you can There are all kinds of reasons that we should give or people do give for why it's appropriate to give the worship. People say that they it's not emotionally able to do it, they're not financially able to do it, uh, the child's not wanted, it's going to disrupt their lives. All of that is logic and it can be Thank you. 